Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring Huichol shamanic culture. My guest once again is my good friend Gail Heisen, who is the host of the Small Medium at Large podcast. Gail has been a guest on New Thinking Aloud seven times previously. I encourage you to check the listings if you haven't viewed some of those earlier videos. This one will be much more meaningful if you do so first. Gail lives in Sebastopol, California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Gail. What a pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you, Jeffries. Happy, I'm happy to be here. And we're going to continue your journey uh, to the uh, high mountain in the uh, Sierra Madre Occidental range where the Huichol Indians live many times at 10,000 feet in, in altitude. You made many trips there. We covered in our previous interview, which I'm encouraging our viewers to watch. And as a matter of fact, I will link to it right now. So for those viewers who haven't, I encourage the viewers to watch all of the previous interviews with you. They'll add so much to what we're about to discuss, but especially the, the first interview about your uh, initial contact with the Huichol people. But now we're going to talk about a, an, an episode that occurred where you discovered while you were up there in the Huichol country that you had cancer. Yes. I First, I have to say to your listeners, it's only me who refers to it as the Weechol country, but I really feel like they're their own people with their own government that live in this mountain that I know it's part of Mexico, but I always refer to it as the Weechol country. And there, they're allowed to have their own land. They don't pay for it. It's just given to them. And they just stake out what would be their house, where they would like to plant, and what they needed to do, and it's theirs. So that's why I call it the Weechol country. I just didn't want to confuse anyone. <laughs> Well, it is their country. It's just not a country. Exactly. And it has their own rules and their own laws and their culture and their own language. So when we spoke in our first uh, part one about the Weecholes, I had mentioned that um, I had a cancer experience, but I did not tell the listeners the story about how it all came about because I feel the Weecholes are really a very big part of my discovering my cancer. So we know from the fact that in the past I was raised with no doctors and we were raised vegans and my life was on that sort of a path growing up. And so when I was in my early 30s, I think I was 32 or 33, just when I was involved with the Weecholes, I'd given, I'd been, had a pap smear and it said that I had very um, uh, scores of having cervical cancer and that I needed to have a biopsy and that I must do all these things and that it was dangerous. But because of my upbringing, I thought, ah, they're just making it up. I don't believe this kind of thing. They probably say this to everybody. They say a little something and all of a sudden you got cancer. Once again, I'm going to link to your our very first interview when in which you talk about your childhood and your parents' attitudes towards doctors and illness and and so on because uh, that's a great introduction to who you are as a human being and uh, <laughs> so so for any of our viewers who haven't watched that one in the upper right hand corner of your screen if you don't have an iPhone or tablet because I don't think it works on those uh, you can link directly to that interview now. In fact, back in the '60s when we did do that trip to Mexico as vegans. My father, at that time, you had to have an immunization, and my father would not allow any of us to have immunization, so we went to some 
special vegan doctor man who actually gave us fake immunizations on our arms, stabbing it with a pin over and over again and some vinegar. And then he stabbed all these, stamped all these official cards so we could go to Mexico back in 1962 or three or four, somewhere in that era. And that's how we entered there with, you know, fake immunization cards. So just for the listeners to understand, my orientation was not to run to doctors to solve a cancer problem or to even believe you had cancer. So I'm down in the mountains and it's my uh, second trip there. And I'm with uh, Miguel and I ask him, I say, you know, I'm here. I'd like to have a cleansing by a shaman because I always like to have a shaman cleansing when I go to be with other cultures if it's possible. So he introduced me to his family shaman named Manka Wiwa. And Manka Wiwa laid me down on a grass mat and he took this device I'm going to show here on. It's called a Moveria. I, my reach all isn't perfect, but it's M-O-V-E-R-E-E. -E, and it's like a wand and it's feathers and it's made with feathers. And he took this and he went all around my body like this to cleanse me and to, you know, see what was wrong inside my body. When he got down to my crotch, he like almost put his head in there and said, oh, there's something in here that's very bad. And remember, this is we chole into Spanish and I don't speak fluent Spanish by any means. Uh, what, what I understood is he said that I had something hard like an embryo was his word and that this hardened thing inside of me had to be taken out and that I needed five shamanic healings to help alleviate this for me. And he was able to perform three of them during the time I was there. But I never was able to receive the other two before I went home. When he gave me the first one and told me about the hardened thing, I realized that I truly did have cancer. And up until that moment, I really didn't believe the doctors. But when the shaman told me, not only did I believe it, but I went into a terrible depression there in the mountains. And my friend uh, Miguel, his father, Guadalupe, who was, you know, a senior and, you know, I think he might have been 95 or something at that point. He, he saw how depressed I was and the shaman had told him that there was something seriously wrong with me that needed to come out. So he went back and he came into my little adobe hut and he brought in this mortar and pestle and he was pounding this, what I thought was like, you know, beef meat or, or, or it was deer, it was deer meat. And I thought he was like pounding it for me to eat the meat. I came to find out some years later, it was actually the dried blood of the deer. And it's caught, the deer is not just killed randomly, it's a sacred ceremonial killing. And this particular blood is considered then sacred from the killing of this deer. And it's what his father used for curing things that are serious in different other people. You were to eat this powdered blood powdered dried blood. So I ate it with a tortilla, scooping it up, and it was a little salty, and I'm figuring I'm eating beef jerky, or I don't know, you know? <laughs> and I went from a depressed person who couldn't even, was sitting there saying, oh my God, I have cancer at 10,000 feet elevation, and I can't even call anybody. And I, I went from crying and depressed to feeling like a Wonder Woman or Superwoman, but whatever was in that mixture made me feel like I was getting a dose of vitamin something or others that made me feel incredibly energetic and my whole body felt like in tuned, like as sharp as can be. That was what we did there. And then I went back home to California. And now that I realized I really had cancer, I wanted to do all the things I could to heal myself naturally because that's the way I was raised. So I didn't want to go to an oncologist and I wasn't going to go have it removed and I was going to see what I could do. But the doctor who had discovered it and done the biopsy after said, you know, if you don't take this out now, you're only going to have two to five years to live. And I said, I have to try it on my terms. And I went off to Hawaii and I did um, uh, work with Joseph Goldstein and I did 10 days of silent meditation. And I was, I think what I was doing was really pretty much healing my soul and my spirit. 
And I did deep body work where I was being pressed on into parts of my body and the memories of all these different, you know, things that should have not happened to me as a child that had happened all came and surfaced and was sort of being healed at the same time and being released from my body. So I had my work with the Weecholes. I did my work with the Buddhist and the meditation and the, and the, and the, you know, leaving the body of, of holding of these past, um, uh, traumas. And then I went, 10 months later, back to the same doctor and said, now I'm ready to find out, is it any bigger or how is, what has happened? She said, well, the tumor was a little bigger and that I needed to have the surgery ASAP. And I said, well, now I'm ready because I've done everything I felt. Well, on the day that I had the surgery, a message got down to the Weecholes from a different few people I knew, because back then it was only word of mouth. There was no cell phones or way to get a message. And a message was gotten there and a ceremony was done for me on that day. And somebody up in a group of Native Americans in the state of Washington that someone who knew me had a dream about that I was going to die from this cancer. So they did this ceremony, not even knowing I was having a surgery that day. And then my oldest friend's mother was in church praying for me that I would survive this, this cancer. Well, when the Weechel shaman had done the little Muveri thing on me, one of the things they do is they suck up on your body and they're trying to extract the disease or whatever it is. And then they spit it in their hands and they show it to you. And sometimes there's bugs in it and blood and different things. Well, when he showed it to me in his hand, there was like a white filmy substance. It was like kind of white and, and, and just very white. And it, it was there sitting in his hand. So when they set me up for the surgery, before they knocked me out, I asked, do you think you could set up a mirror so I could see what you're looking at inside there? Because <laughs> I wanted to see the tumor, right? So they set it up, and sure enough, I saw a white, filmy thing that looked very similar to what this man had sucked up and spit into his hands the few months earlier. You mean you were conscious during the surgery? Before it started, when they were getting me ready and prepping me. So since it was through, it was a vaginal surgery, since it was that way, they were going to be opening me up to extract the tumor. So they cut out the tumor out of my cervix, and they also cut out, I think, more than half of my cervix with it. And the doctor came in, his name was George, and he came into my bedside as you're in the recovery from the anesthesia, and they're pulling out all this gauze out of my uh, crotch. And when I woke up, it kind of, I thought I was in like a, a, a magic trick where they're pulling the, 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 the scarves out of the thing. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking like it's scarves coming out of me. <laughs> and I'm laughing. And he turns to me and he says, I, I'm taking out the gauze and there isn't even blood here. He said, I don't know what you did with your Indians. And this is a quote from a, you know, long-term medical doctor saying, I have my hat off to you because I don't know what you did with you and your Indians, but the tumor has it totally encapsulated itself in just a complete skin, just grew all around it. And he said, because of that encapsulation, the cancer never spread to your liver and all the places like it was set to do as they originally thought. So I have been grateful to the Weecholes because I would have never jumped on the cancer thing had not the shaman told me this. He didn't use the word cancer. His word was a hardened lump that was like an embryo. So that was his description. And um, that was when I was, you know, 30, 30, 33, 34. And I gave birth to a son at home in bed without anything but a midwife, you know, a year later after all of that. And I felt that it was their blessing that made me able to conceive another child. And when one of the shamans came up here to visit and met my son, he was taken out as a baby to the ocean here in Bodega Bay, but a little bit north where, a little north of Bodega Bay, up where we have the arched um, rock there. I forget, Goat's Rock. We went up to Goat's Rock and the shaman Esteme, who may he be resting in peace and spirit, is not with us anymore. He named my son Matsua. 
So my son was given a Weechol name and they often felt he was like a Weechol. And I think it has something to do with my involvement with Miguel, the fact I had cancer, the fact I conceived a child after being with them. In fact, I also conceived my last child after I was with the Weecholes. I came back and got pregnant instantly. And by the way, I was told I could never have any more children. So getting these last two was pretty great. Who told you that? The doctors. They said I had a very slight, my whatever the levels or whatever they test. And I, I had also a fallopian scarring from um, my my wild sexual hippie days when we contracted all sorts of different venereal diseases. So from that, I had a lot of scarring. So I only had one tube that actually worked to, you know, to, to do this. And so I've always considered my son like a miracle golden blessing child that came from some spiritual place. And um, the name they gave him, Matsua, is the Weechol name for the connection of, you know, for them, the gods are the gods of the deer, the gods of the peyote, the god of the sun. So my son, Matsua, is, is, is the bracelet and the connection of, say, a peyote and a deer. That's what that signifies. And he, they've often asked, he's 32 now, and they've often asked, how is he? And could you please bring him up to, to bring him to the mountains to visit us? So that's my happy cancer story <laughs> and my gratefulness to my Weechol friends and family for helping me through that time. And it sounds like it was really very serious for you emotionally that you went from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs after one particular ceremony. Be, uh, absolutely. I went from the depth of the what I call the black hole of depression where you'd like to take your life and there's no reason to live from that place to, you know what, I can deal with this. I'm going to fight this cancer. Whatever it is I got, it's not getting me. I'm a strong woman and I will I will get through all of this. And that's how I left the Weechol country, as I call it, to go home and face that. And I, I, I don't know if they ever know how much I'm so grateful, but uh, if, they, if any of them are watching, I am incredibly grateful for this experience. So much so that you wanted to bring your father with you to visit the Huichol people. So the first two trips I did solo by myself. And then my third trip, of course, my girlfriends, when they heard all the different stories, were saying, you should not be going there alone. You should be going there with someone. Take someone with you. And I was seeing that my dad, who was in his early 60s at the time, who's always been an energetic, vibrant guy, he was getting very depressed and sort of stuck in the doldrums of, you know, he, he was retired, he was repairing cars. He was just kind of getting really, really depressed. And he was losing his oomph for life. You know what I mean? And so I knew he needed something to jolt him out of this. So I said, Dad... Do you want to take a trip with me to the mountains of Mexico to be with the Weechol Indians? You've met Miguel here at our house. Would you like to go with me there? And he said, well, what am I going to go there for? What do I need to do that for? Well, I said, well, because there, there's things there we might be able to help them with. And you know a lot of things that maybe we could help them out when we go visit. And I would just like you to go and meet and experience this different culture. So just a heads up for people that don't know my father. He's not the kind of guy who's ever going to say, I love you. He's never going to say, I'm happy or I had a good time. And he's not going to ever do anything that's romantic or poetic or he's, he doesn't drink alcohol. He doesn't do drugs. He hasn't had an aspirin in his body in 60 years. So this is the kind of individual we're talking about, right? And he's a Jewish New Yorker. I take him to the first trip to the mountains and the man transforms once he's in this culture. All of a sudden, we're going to a ceremony called the Ceremony of the Corn, which I'll explain in a minute. This man is drinking some of the kind of alcohol they're passing him, which is made from the maguey plant. It's not like from a store. And he's, they're passing some type of a smoke thing in a pipe and he's taking a, I mean, the man doesn't have a smoke on anything in his life, but for some reason in this culture, he participated in everything that he's against. He danced, 
he sang. A little uh, 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 one of a friend of one of Miguel's wanted a poem written from English into Spanish, a love poem to send to a boyfriend, and my dad was writing love poems. I was like, "Who is this man? I mean, you know him your whole life, and all of a sudden you bring him to the Wheat Charles, and he turns into a completely different person." That I can tell you, none of our family ever saw that man. <laughs> he had the same gut stomach level feeling as me. Like I love these people. I want to do whatever I can to help them. And so while we were there on that first trip, there was another child I had spoken about, a Peotero's child who had passed away when I was in the first trip. This was my friend Emilio's baby boy. And it was so, you know, a boy is definitely more revered than the girl, like in a lot of cultures. And he was so thrilled for this baby And we heard that when we were going to get to the mountain that he had one. So I stocked up on blankets and and they said he needs some food. So I bought formula and things to help out with the baby. And when we got there, as my dad said, we were really a little too late, but we tried our best. And my dad came up with ideas because they couldn't get any milk or food in the child. And my dad took raisins and soaked them and took a little tiny bit of extraction of the raisin juice to mix with water that was sweet. And that was something the baby took to and was able to get hydrated again. We had kids that came in that, you know, we don't even know why they came to us, but they did. And we chose would arrive at our little adobe hut. And I had, as I had said earlier, you have to travel with your own first aid extensive kit because you're very far away if you cut yourself or something happens. So we had all these things to to help people. So they came to us and my dad, he's got that his trusty razor blade and he's slashing open wound sores on people and the pus is going everywhere and he's cleaning them all up. So here we are two New Yorkers who don't really know that much about these things, but we were doing whatever we could to help and the people knew we were coming from our heart. So I know we didn't damage anybody. I know we cleaned up some infected wounds and, you know, we helped out in that way. And he was coming to life. While he was there, he was thinking about all the things we could do when we come back again on the next trip. And he said, in the next time we go, we cannot go with a uh, us coming on the burrows and the donkeys and the mules. He said, I need a truck. He said, then I can have my tools and we can help them build things and we can do stuff. I'll discuss that after because I'd like to sort of stay in line. I would like to explain the, what the ceremony of the corn that he attended that brought so much joy to him. All right. The ceremony of the corn. It's called the ceremony of the corn. And actually, I only today understood more about it than I did before because I happen to have a wee chole friend visiting right now. So we asked, I asked him all about the ceremony this morning while we were planting some tomatoes and what I had not known is that is what we would call in our culture the naming of a child. And I had no idea because for years we used to see, used to tell us, you know, my name is Silawame, Silawname, which in Wicho means honey. And he said I was named that name because they said I was a very sweet child. And I thought to myself, oh, so... When you're born, how could you get that name if you're only a few days old? Because we name our children when they're born. Well, I only discovered today that, that they're not given a name when they are born. You are only a daughter or a son. When you have the ceremony of the corn and the shamans are all there, you bring your child ages one to five. And when you bring your child to the shaman, like uh, Julio, whose witchel name is Silawame, when he was brought as a baby, or one or two, he thinks he was about two, when he was brought for that ceremony, the shaman then communicates to one of two gods. It's either the god of the sun or the god of the corn, and he asks them, what name should this child have? And whatever name the shaman hears, that becomes that child's name. And that's when he heard that Julio Silawame would be a very sweet soul. And he is in his mid-60s right now, and I can tell you they don't come any sweeter than this man. And anyone who has ever met him said, the sweetest, most beautiful soul of the earth and nature that you could meet is this man. 
So that's where the child gets their actual Huichol name. Julio is a name given by the Huichol Mexican government. So during the ceremony of the corn, it's very festive. And I didn't know what it was when they invited us, but I brought all these packages of marigold seeds. And it's they have a lot of marigolds that I brought seeds for them to plant. I didn't know that that was their flower for ceremony. So I was very happy. I cognitively, whatever, knew what to bring. And there's... It's a happy ceremony that only goes on for three days, unlike the peyote, which is more like five. This one, a drum is played and there's a fire under the drum. And it's played for the three days, you know, continually, as I recall. And there's all these lovely foods being passed around, little corn patties and all things to do with corn. And this ceremony is also to, like bless the harvest that they should have a lot of corn and a lot to be able to have in big harvests. And, um, and it's a very like happy ceremony and it's all filled with children. And at that time on the borough, I had brought 40 pairs of shoes in a duffel bag. And I did not know that children, this was a ceremony for children. I'm always going to these things blindly. I don't know what's going on. I just intuitively bring whatever I think. And so it was so wonderful to have so many children in one spot at one time and have them come and line them up and match the different size shoes for each kid. And the most incredible, impressive thing that happened was that that was the era when shoes for kids had lights in them. And I don't know if you remember that, but when they jump up and down, their shoes would light up. And when the shaman saw that, they all came to me and said, when you come back, we want those shoes. I said, I can't bring you those shoes because they only make them for children, you know. <laughs> but it was an impressive thing at the ceremony at night to see them dancing in the dark and then for them to light up their feet. Anyhow, so that was a really lovely ceremony. And I was so happy to have my dad there and for him to have such a positive experience and to learn about what that ceremony really, really means. And uh, those are the two ceremonies I've attended. I'm not sure what other ones they have, but these are the biggest ones of the year, the ceremony of the corn and the ceremony of the peyote or dance of the deer, they sometimes call it. So what actually uh, transpired during the ceremony? What happens is children line up and shamans do healing on them. So like if your child's been really sick, even though they have been given a name and everything, there's also part of the ceremony to bring your child either to be blessed or to be healed. And you'll, you know, and then you see some children that you can see are, are really sick and really need help. And they're there with their mothers waiting and everybody's sort of waiting till their turn. And you're eating and dancing and there's music and drumming and, and it's just a lovely ceremony like that. Do they do anything with the corn itself? There's corn, cor different things with corn that you're eating, corn patties and different things like this. There's also a, um, a, 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 a woman gets constructed out of all corn husks and they actually put clothing on and, and a bag and making it look like a real person, but it's all made out of corn. And that's done in the Kali way. That's the Spanish name for the temple. The um, Huichol name is Tuki. And in there, that's constructed. But I believe that's at the end of the peyote ceremony to prepare for the next harvest. The peyote ceremony is sounds like it's more of a, an altered state of consciousness, whereas the ceremony of the corn might be more of a conventional uh, ceremony and not necessarily one involving sh shamanic um, states of awareness. I think that they are all working with shamans. So the shamans are doing, they doing dream time part of the time in the Tuki or Kali way. Um, so there is other things going on that I'm, I can't explain to you, but I think that the, the difference in the two ceremonies would be that the one on the peyote, sometimes hundreds and hundreds of people could show up for that one, where the ceremony of the corn is a more intimate, smaller, probably geared more to just all the children and people in your community. But in the other one, there'll be uh, we chose that come from Santa Catarina, San Andreas, 
and um, uh, San Sebastian. Those are the three big communities of the Huichol. So that's like a bigger event. And in our previous interview, uh, in which you described the peyote ritual, you also reported a number of dreams that you had in the context of that ritual. Uh, and I wonder, in this trip with your father and the ceremony of the corn, were you having dreams as well? I'm sure I was, but I did not actually look through my journals to find out what I would, because it's hard to remember from 33 years ago. Um, so I don't remember what dreams I had there, but yes, I definitely had dream because there it, you're, it's almost like energetically, you don't have all the electronic and electrical or any kind of interferences. So the dreams are so clear and sharp. And plus you're in a culture that dreaming is, you know, a way of life. So I, you know, I can't tell you any specific ones, but yes, Dreaming is very sharp there. But they weren't as striking, obviously. as No, not that. That Those were a lot of precognitive, seeing things before they occurred on my uh-huh. first first trips there. Um, yeah. I, uh, uh, <clears throat> I left there with my dad, and all our holy plan was was to return as soon as possible. Did you find that you, once you got back to California, your father... Uh, reverted back to his old self or was he permanently changed? He was back to being, he was not dancing and writing love poems or anything. I don't want you to think that continued. (laughs) But he was excited and inspired by the fact that there were people down there that he would love to help. And Mm -hmm. um, so when I said to him, well, he said, but we got to get a truck. We got to get a truck. And I've had this, I mean, I have to acknowledge that I really have this unusual ability that I haven't talked to you about, but I manifest things. And for my own self, it's difficult. If I wanted something for my own self, it's not quite as as easy. But when I want to manifest something to help other people or for somebody else, it just appears. And I'm just saying, I'm not bragging or anything like this. I'm just saying factually, it's what happens to me. So I left, you know, to go to Santa Rosa near where I live. And after I decided I'd had to get a truck, within two days of making that decision, I see a truck on a side street with a sign on it in the corner, $1,500 for a diesel international pickup. I think it was diesel or no, no, it was regular. It wasn't diesel. And it looked like it came out of Mexico. It was pale blue. It was old. It had a little camper shell on the back. And I called up my dad because the thing about my dad is he's a car mechanic. And I knew that if him and I went together to the mountains, I would be doing every all the driving and navigating, but he would repair if anything happened on the way. He zipped over to meet me by the truck. He said, oh, this is, this is in great shape. He said, buy it, $1,500. I brought the truck back here. And for the next six months, I just sent out messages to family and friends. And I said, I'm not trying to change these people's culture, but these children need shoes and jackets to stay warm. They have their own clothing, but they could use some clothes, but whatever you could send. And if you have any stuffed animals or certain things that would be child appropriate, send it. If you have jeans for men, clothing for men, you know, so I I had a whole list of things from being there that I knew they could use, hats, things to protect you from the sun. And from my relatives in New York to ones in Chicago, people sent me boxes of stuff. And I turned my whole porch into a, you know, Gale Salvation Army or something. (laughs) And I'm collecting all this stuff. And I had never done anything like this before in my life. I got myself a little uh, from the Science of Lord Church. I became a minister, so I'd have permission to go into another country to give away clothing and food and shoes. And I made sure that everything I had was used. Nothing was brand new. And we brought things like sheets of plywood we lined the bottom of the truck with. We brought stuff to help, you know, hammers and nails. And, you know, my dad took care of those kind of items, what we could do. And then, you know, we even threw in a a guitar or two we found because we remember some little boy saying, could I have a guitar? 
Do you know that I found out that 30 years later, that young kid we gave that guitar to, that we schlepped from here all the way there, now has CDs of his We Chol music produced. So this is how you think you don't know, but you can affect a person's life by something as little and small as giving a gift like that. I'm just saying it makes me very happy to know that these things really did do help in ways. So when we, my dad wasn't in charge of packing. My dad was only in charge of getting the vehicle in perfect order for the trip. Mind you, we both know we're going on a road that has been hand dug. Why we chose, it's not a real road. <laughs> so what we did is I did all the driving from here all the way to the mountains of Mexico. At the mountains of Mexico, where you had to go into four wheel drive, my dad took over. And he drove us into the mountain. And before getting there, I just have to add this funny little custom story. We get to the customs, you know, and my dad is like, he's, he's behind me the whole way about doing this until we hit customs. And when we get to customs, it turns out it's, you know, the siesta hour. And we're somewhere between Texas and um, Mexico. That's where we were entering, not California. And there's lines and lines and we cannot get through any customs and we cannot get across the border and we have to wait. So we're waiting and waiting and my dad is getting more impatient by the minute. And finally, I get to see this woman and she says to me, well, you know, this is a wonderful thing that you're doing to help the people. Here's some papers so that you don't, you'll be able to get through and you'll get down there quickly. We show the papers, we go through, we go a hundred miles and it's already night by then. And we've already had hours at the border and my dad's just ready to kill me. We get to the next thing that he ended up calling Checkpoint Charlie. <laughs> and it's in the middle of the nowhere. And it's got your huge Mexican Gestapo guy there. <laughs> and he's sitting there with his huge belly and he says, I want you to take out everything in the vehicle and show me everything you have in there. And I say, no, I'm not going to do that. And my father's looking at me. What do you mean you're not going to do it? The, you know, the head guy here saying you have to. I said, no. I said, here's these letters. It says everything that's in there. I'm not emptying this vehicle. By the end of it, as long as we paid him off, which is very common in Mexico, he finally let us through. But at that point, my dad wanted to turn around and just abandon the entire mission. <laughs> so we got through. And when we get to the top of the mountain, and, you know, this is days and days of travel. We get to the top of the mountain and they say we can't give anything away to anyone. And then my dad really wants to kill me. <laughs> he said, you mean you slept all this stuff all this way and we can't give it away? So we had to meet the governor of the Weechol Indians. I had to do a presentation. And then he said, as long as there's a sleeping bag there for me, you can give away everything to the other people. <laughs> <laughs> so I felt like we, it was like corruption is even at 10,000 feet elevation, you know? <laughs> so we sat in a little adobe hut for four days and my dad and I gave out, each family would come in one at a time. I mean, and what father does a trip like this with his daughter, helping to size the people for shoes and jackets and, you know, so each person would leave with a big garbage bag full of stuff. Plus we supplied beads that we had bagged at home here and brought to the Weechol so that they would have something where they could create something to, you know, these kind of bracelets. So then they can sell them and create money for their own self. So these were the good ways of I learned to give where it's not money, but ways that can help and ways that can help you to earn money if that's your, your choice. So he supported all that and we spent four days doing that and it was exhausting. When we finished, our friend Miguel said, I think it was 140 families that you gave things to. And when uh -huh. I emptied the truck, my dad looked at me and said, 
now I understand why you wouldn't open this up at any of the of the customs because how I packed that much stuff in there, if I had to have opened it up anywhere, we never would have got it all back in there again to the mountain. That was the only reason I didn't want to open it because I knew I'd done an amazing pack job. <laughs> so it was a very wonderful way to be able to help. It brought tremendous joy to my father and tremendous joy for me because I don't want to get emotional, but it was a very beautiful bonding father and daughter memory created that will never, ever leave me. And also what a memorable thing, you know, he became known amongst the Weecholes. He was honored. The shaman who had done the healing, um, the Manka Wiwa, he heard my dad was coming and insisted on having photos with him and my dad together. They spoke about him. When Tom, we got to Las Latas, the sacred ceremonial grounds, on that first trip, my dad refused food and he only walked for the 16 hours on water. And they kept saying, we need to stop and rest. And my father in his 60s said, I don't need to stop and rest. We have to keep walking until we get there. So by the time we got there, they said, we don't think he's an American. We think he's a Weechol. Who could walk through the mountains without resting, without food? They kept saying, don't you want a tortilla? And he'd say, no, I don't eat until we get there. <laughs> so he showed them his strength, physical strength, that they were in, they were really blown away. And he was also a weightlifter. So even though he was a small guy, five foot eight, he had a really well-built body. And the Weecholes don't um, bear their skin to the sun. When you're there, nobody walks around with a shirt off. Even it's 100 degrees out. So it was 100 degrees out, and I look over, and there's my dad. He's taking his clothes off. And, <laughs> and I'm seeing everybody's eyes are popping out <laughs> because my dad is heavily endowed with a very heavy, hairy chest, his entire chest. And there are hairless people. And all of a sudden, they look at my dad with all, like a gorilla, you know? <laughs> so they're watching a daughter yelling at a father, and that's not done in that culture. And nobody knows. I'm saying to him, put your shirt on. You have to wear your shirt. He says, I'm hot. I don't want to wear a shirt. <laughs> says, you have to wear your shirt. <laughs> so he put his shirt back on. But these are the kind of funny, wonderful stories that I'm able to tell my children that, you know, what grandpa was like. And, if, if, and you know, there's not a lot of people, you know, him and my husband are the only two men I ever took there and the only people I ever took there. And um, he was given the honorary chair to sit in and they honored my dad that I had brought like the most important person to their to their village that I could bring was my dad. And that's how they treated him. And it was very healing for him. Oh, very healing. I, I felt like it gave him his next new lease on life. You know, it jump-started him back to enjoying life again. It took him out of his, you know, depression, drudge, or whatever it was that he was in. I'm so grateful to these people for so many things. But the cancer and the reviving of my father would be my two biggest, most important things that was so wonderful. Now, if I understand correctly, Las Latas, the sacred grounds that he walked to, that's where the peyote ceremony is held. And the ceremony of the corn. Both of them. Yes, same place, same temples, and just different things are going on inside and out. But dream time is involved in both of those ceremonies amongst the Weecholes. So your father went there for the corn ceremony, not for the peyote. No, he has never been to the peyote ceremony. My husband has, but not my dad. And that's a story we're going to save for our next interview. We'll bring the husband into the last <laughs> interview. <laughs> so, in fact, on that trip when my dad and I had the truck, we decided Miguel and his brother Emilio wanted to come back into the United States but they don't really have a lot of paperwork or anything to show who they are or to bring them into this country. But they said, well, we'll go with you and maybe something will happen. You know, so we said to them, we don't know if I, I said, I don't know if I could get you across the border, but if you want to try. So they left with us from the mountains of Mexico. And that's where Miguel said goodbye to his mom in the temple. 
and she did a little ceremony on um, Miguel and I together that everything would be safe. I didn't know that that would actually be the last time Miguel ever saw his mother because during that trip back here to the United States, she passed away while he was staying with us and we received a phone call and it was his closest. He was very much loving of his mother and caring of her. So that was kind of devastating for him. But when we didn't know if we'd get them in, they said, well, we'll go with you all the way to the border. If they won't let us across, we'll just go home. So we said, okay. We get to the border and we're all in the line waiting to show whatever few papers and and they don't have anything. Like, I don't even think they have a birth certificate. (laughs) And I see the American uh, person in custom speaking to a little Mexican woman and her son. And she's dressed in her little black dress with the little black shoes. And the questions she's asking are what I would think was simple. Well, how old are you? And she kept saying, I don't really know. (laughs) And the son looked at her and she was saying, I could be 60, I could be 70, maybe I'm 65. And there was something in that scene that put me into my place of which I call a healing laughter, where I went into laughing because I was so scared about customs that my laughter went hysterical and I can't stop when I get to that point. So I'm in the line looking at the little, you know, communication thing going on there, laughing hysterically. And then it's my turn soon enough to get in front of the customs guy. I got my dad behind me and the two Weecholes. And the custom guy has this serious look, so I'm really scared. And he said, were you the one that was laughing? (laughs) And I said, yeah, I couldn't help it. It was just such a funny situation that it just made me go out of control. He said, well, I just want you to know, I haven't heard laughter like that in years. And it made me laugh and it made me happy. He said, I'll do anything you want. What do you want? Anything. I said, well, I just wanted to bring my two friends in for six months to just visit, stay with our house, and then they'll, we'll bring them back home. We'll pay for everything. They're just here as guests. No problem. He stamped everything, gave them six months visiting visas, and away we went. And they were in <laughs> shock. <laughs> and I was in shock. You know, I was, and because I was so nervous, you know, I'm trying to bring people in. You know, that's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> and it worked, and, and they came, and then we had our adventures here. So anyhow, this was a a very memorable dad and daughter experience. (laughs) Well, it also suggests that your shamanistic abilities are starting to bud. There was a lot of things going on then that was like that, yes. Just the healing alone and the working with the cancer was a, you know, and that had a lot of dreams involved with it. It's worth mentioning for our viewers, because we've done several interviews now on your experience with Mongolian shamans, which occurred later, that all of this time you spent with the Huichel shamans and rituals was in effect a preparation for your initiation into Mongolian shamanism. Absolutely. And I never, you know, in, in, in Huichol, it's a very arduous, you know, difficult road to become a shaman. And you can be a woman or a man. But, you know, when you speak to my, when I speak to my friend who we could maybe have pop in and say hello in our next show, uh, uh, it's very, it's a very hard, you know, it's not an easy road. Whatever we chooses or has been chosen to be shaman is, uh, not an, an easy path. And it's 20 years for them to really be considered, you know, a shaman. And everyone picks their own. There are many shamans there, but some are considered better at healing and some are considered better at blessing your home. So that's their their culture, just like the Mongolian, is very, very rich in shamanism. And it is their doctor, therapist, you know, everything that we go to in different people is all in that one shaman. Well, it seems to me, Gail... Correct me if I'm wrong, that if we include your experience with the Huichols as preparation for your initiation into Mongolian shamanism, that was a 20-year process. You know, actually, you're right. I hadn't thought of it that way. And all the shamanic ceremonies I intended from all the different cultures around the world, I hadn't even thought about that. 
Very, that's also very true. Yes. I, there's something I wanted to bring up that I, th- I, I thought I'll bring it up now while we're discussing this because we're talking about Mongolia and I've always, always liked to see what are the things they have similar, like the mirror that they wear around the neck. You know, the Weecholes have that. The Mongolians have that. But there's something I wanted to talk to your listeners about because they're in my photos. And I don't want, you know, I come from a Jewish family and I, of course, you know, know about all the horrors of, you know, World War II and all of these things. And so it's been a little difficult for me when I was in the Mongolian group. They've given me necklaces and things that I don't wear because it has the symbol that we associate as the swastika. And I wanted to bring this up because maybe you could find any information by our next show, if it's shaped differently or what exactly it is, but it's in all the Mongolian, you know, like when they give me a a jaw harp, there might be one on the end. When I was with that beautiful uh, shaman, um, uh, Hanga, Hangshu, I can't remember the name, but when I was with her, and there's a picture I think I sent you. If you look down her whole clothing, it's all swastikas. And I was like afraid to post some of these photos thinking people would, just as I did, associate that only with the horrors and atrocities, you know, of Hitler and World War II. But these people are, is a symbol that they worship and do all their praying with. So you can't say no. So when my shaman initiated me, she gave me a silver pendant as her gift to me after she initiated me, but the back of it has the swastika roll on it. So I had never worn it feeling like, uh, you know, what we associate. And as we were, I was gathering this information for you to prepare for our Weechol photos that I'll have here for you. There's that same symbol carved in their guitar, carved in their, so they have the same symbol. So I'd like to know what's going on with this symbol that I've been afraid to to show in photos, but to these people is a very important thing. And I asked you, you do know about World War II, and they do. I mean, I don't know about the Weechals, but the Mongolians did. But if they don't associate that symbol like we do. We see that and we just go, <gasps> Well, it's an ancient Buddhist symbol. And uh, of course, there are probably many variations. And I just wanted all the listeners to know I'm not, you know, I don't, put that up of these people's symbol thinking I'm not trying to represent anything negative when I show a photo of someone that's wearing that particular symbol. It's a very profound thing that the same symbol that uh, we sometimes think of as expressing the epitome of evil is also used in another culture to represent some of the highest uh, spiritual aspirations of humanity. And we live on a planet where these things often get confused. So that's, you know, so I don't want to like when they present me that way, a gift or a thing, I don't want to go. I want to say, oh, thank you. I think the lesson is that we need to learn how to discern inwardly in our heart because these things are not obvious outwardly. You can't tell when you run into somebody who might seem very smiling and happy and gentle that they're really a good person. They're not always a really good person or a person who might seem harsh and rude and demeaning. Uh, You might think, oh, this is a bad person, but actually could could be a really good person. Exactly. And uh, so I've been working with this and you're the first person that I verbally have discussed it with. I haven't talked about it. And I felt that it was really important for the listeners to know this. The discussion has come up recently, I might mention, just parenthetically for viewers who watch other New Thinking Aloud videos in relationship to what's happening today with UFOs and alien contact. Like, are these aliens who sometimes might seem so helpful and uh, according to certain books are giving us all this technology and want to rescue us and deactivate our nuclear weapons? Is this a good thing or is it a bad thing? Time will tell. (laughs) We have the ability to discern. Isn't that considered one of the spiritual gifts of a shaman to be able to discern these things? Yes. And that's, and also the same thing amongst shamans. 
There are shamans that work with evil and darkness and do things to send negative energy to people. And then there are shamans who only walk in the light and are dealing with healing and helping and, and light. And sometimes you can't tell that. You go to some event and there's this shaman there and they're in all these fancy clothes and you think, oh, this must be some great guy. He may not be a great guy. You have to trust your gut to know the feeling. If you get a negative or frightening feeling or anything, you should trust that. In fact, as I recall from our discussion on Mongolian shamanism and your first trip to Mongolia, you became very close to a a, a shaman of Zorik Batar. Zorik Batar, who who you revered and who was very helpful, and I think even today you have very fond feelings for Zorik Batar. But at one time you felt under attack, psychic attack by him. Now I realize that. Just like all those things, it was a lesson to show me that I could be strong. So I never think of the things like, it's, what did I learn from that? He taught me to be strong when an attack is coming at me, by attacking me. <laughs> uh, I had one other thing. I just wasn't sure whether they could see this, but these are little Weechol women. You know, it's a, it's a representation oh, of a yes. Weechol woman in the earrings. And mm -hmm. these are from like my first trip down there, like from 30 something years ago. Yeah. And this was just sent to me by, um, it was brought up by, uh, Silao Name, Julio, by his son Silao. And Silao handmade this whole eagle for me. And I've often felt this is my totem. So I was very thrilled that that's what he chose to send. Mm -hmm. I have an insane collection of, beaded items, and also Weechol bags, which is something else that they're very big with. And every Weechol carries all their possessions when they're traveling around in these bags. This will have their clothing in it. This will have peyote in it. There will always be these dangling little balls or tass tassels. There would be tassels coming down like this. This is all hand embroidered. This is not, that pattern is not and nobody draws on these things. This the, the fine work and the detail of what they do, and usually with just two needles and a, and a plate that the beads are on, and they come up with the most amazing, beautiful artwork. So anyone out there seeing that, really, please support them. In concluding our interview, there was one other thing you wanted to bring up. On one of my trips, on two of my trips, on one, I brought back a Weechol drum. And it's all, I was in somewhere and they were all working on this. And I said, oh my God, and I went back and got this drum. So the top was the skin of a deer. The drum is made out of a tree. And then the yarn is pressed all around this drum. And it's just, it's just a beautiful piece. I will have a photo for you to, to share. And the other one is a painting that I think is very important for everyone to see and I thought we could finish on this. This is a painting that I purchased in Mexico from uh, Miguel that they were working on, which depicts the history of the Huichol people. And in the painting, you will see in the center of painting, you'll see a boat. Because as I understand it, they believe they came from the water. They came from the water and in this boat, you'll see the gods of the corn in the boat because they're coming to the people. So you'll have a red one, a blue one, a yellow one, a white one. So the, the corns are, the corn gods are in this boat. And then all around the edges, you'll see the deer and the peyotes and the shamans and the fires. And I just think it's a very beautiful painting to actually look at and get an understanding of their culture and their people. And it was made for me to to give me this, you know, this is, this, and that's what, I mean, I can't tell you the truth of whether that's exactly how it is. This is just what was told to me. I believe that this is what this is a depiction of, which is the beginning of the Weechol people and how they came to be. Very beautiful, Yale. Yeah, I'm delighted to be able to share that with our viewers. And I'm very happy to let our viewers know that we have yet a third interview that we plan to do about your experiences with the Weechol people. I look forward to it, and I hope your listeners enjoy it as much as I enjoy doing this. 
Well, Gail, Tyson, thank you again so much from the bottom of my heart for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Jeffrey. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.